Bible reading this morning is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, and it's on page 1003 of your church Bibles. It's entitled, Jesus Calls Levi and Eats with Sinners. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you this morning. Um, Before I start, I just wanted to say um, thank you to all those who've worked very hard to prepare the rectory, and um, it's uh, it's a great place to live. And we we know that you had a bit of a mini tour last year, but there's a lot of things still to be done. So we thought, if you want today, you want to have a little sticky bit because it's kind of all done now. Uh, You can wander over in morning tea grab a cup of coffee and wander over and check it out if you want. Uh, Em will be over there and the air conditioning will be on and you can, you know, don't stay all day, but, <laughs> but feel free to stay for a bit. Check it out, see what, the, what uh, the wardens and the team have done just to get the place ready. We're very thankful for it and, you know, it's our house, but it's also yours, so uh, go and check it out. Okay, I'm going to pray for us and we're going to think about God's word. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to our hearts and minds this morning so that we would know the Lord Jesus more, be equipped to serve him more faithfully and love him more dearly. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was at high school, I, um, I was n- not a great athlete. Um, that, of course, comes as a surprise to all of you. But I really wanted to be in the athletics team. And the reason was... I went to an Anglican school. Uh, everyone had to have a tracksuit. You know how it is. You know, just another thing to buy. Everyone had to have a tracksuit. But the athletics team got the really nice tracksuit. A really nice tracksuit made of, like, parachute kind of material. And, you know, it was the 90s, so things looked bad. But <laughs> comparatively speaking, it was fantastic. And I, I really wanted this. Now, I, what I lacked in um, physical prowess, I made up in the gift of negotiation, so to speak, and in intuition. I looked at that athletics team and I realised they had one gaping hole and that was the reserve shot puttist. (laughs) And I mean, I couldn't put a shot, so to speak, in any significant way. I think I I barely qualified for most competitions, but no one else wanted to be a shot putter. And so I decided to be in the shot put team and come the final announcement of the athletics team for the, for the, for the, the meet, 
there I was, reserve shot putist. And then you know, as I go up, I receive my tracksuit. <laughs> and I say that because, of course, it, in part it was about the tracksuit, but if, if you have any sense of intuition, you know that it was is about actually belonging to this group, right? They got marked out by having the tracksuit. And um, I guess I felt a certain sense of achievement in that moment. I talk about belonging because when we think about the Christian faith, it is fundamentally a faith about belonging. It's about belonging. And uh, in this morning's passage, the events takes place by a lake. We see that, verse 13, Jesus is walking by a lake. And in these early chapters of Mark's story of Jesus' life, lakes are important because that's where he's calling people. He's calling people to belong to him. He's already done it in chapter 1 when he called uh, the, the initial group of disciples, the fishermen, and now he's back at a lake and we see another call, another invitation. Christianity is fundamentally an invitation, a religion that invites people to belong. In fact, that's really what is the difference, I think, between Christianity and every other religion out there. Every other religion is people going in search of God. But the Christian faith is about God coming in search of people. And at this moment, that's exactly what's happening. And I just want to spend a little bit of time this morning thinking about the nature of God's invitation, because that's what we've got a little invitation, what they call call passage. I want to think a little bit about the nature of God's invitation. I want to think about the challenge of God's invitation and perhaps why some people might reject that fundamentally. And then I want to think about why, despite all the challenges of it, people people actually accept Jesus' invitation. So what's the nature of this invitation? Well, in this passage, Jesus is walking along. A lot of things have already happened because two, two whole chapters of Mark have taken place. And yet he comes back and he calls, and we're told he calls Levi. Now, the thing that's really interesting about the gospel account here is that a person is named. The Bible, Jesus, in the accounts of Jesus' life, people aren't always named. He runs into hundreds, thousands of people over his lifetime of ministry. And only a few people's names are actually given to us, but Levi's name is given, and even more than that, his profession is given to us, which is a tax collector. Tax collectors are kind of the people everyone loves to hate. They're worse than the tax man because not, they're not doing a legitimate job, they're often doing an illegitimate job to get financial gain. The gap between what they're meant to collect and what they actually collect is how they accrue their profits. So a tax collector was often someone who collected more than they were required to. And that's certainly what was happening here with Levi. So what we're automatically struck with in Mark is the breadth of people who Jesus is inviting. In Mark 1, he invites fishermen who are financially very poor people, but I guess they've got self-respecting jobs. Then you've got Levi, who's very wealthy, but not respected by anyone or accepted by anyone. Actually, then you push forward to the end of Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 15, and we encounter this guy Joseph of Arimathea in a moment. Joseph is rich and a religious person, but he also follows Jesus. And by the end of the story, you see that there's just this huge breadth of people who the call of the Gospel is going to. Just there, it's just worth reflecting. You know, sometimes I think we have a particular vision of the kind of people that God is calling, and we have a sense of who they are. But then you encounter the gospel, you see actually that Jesus is calling all sorts of people. Yes, he's calling people like you, but he's also calling people who are different to you. 
And maybe you're in this building today and you've been exploring the Christian faith. You're not really sure if it's Jesus is actually calling you. I want to say that perhaps actually he is calling you. Actually, there isn't a group that he's not calling. There's not a group that doesn't receive this invitation. So I, we start by seeing the breadth of Jesus' invitation. But what's interesting is also to notice the depth of his invitation. He says to Levi, follow me. It's the only command in the whole passage. Follow me. And uh, Levi gets up and does it. And you would expect, I guess, if you're writing a, a story about someone following, for the next encounter to be Levi as part of the group of the disciples listening to Jesus' teaching, because that was, of course, what he was doing before Levi meets him. But do you notice what's actually happening in verse 16? The very next thing we hear, the very next product of being called into Jesus' life is for Jesus to go to Levi's house and to have a meal with him. And a meal in Jesus' time is a very important social moment. There are meals throughout the Gospels. Luke's Gospel is littered, actually, with meals of Jesus. And we see another meal here in Mark. And meals are these important social moments. I mean, they're important in our culture, too. The people we have over for dinner. There's intentionality in the people we invite, particularly in Jesus' time. If you had a meal with them, you were either lowering yourself to their state or they were being raised to yours. In, in a sense, you were saying, we're on the same level. We are on the same level. A meal's marked who was in and who was out. Whoever sat around the table, that identified something. That's worth reflecting as we come to the Lord's table later. That as we eat together, that's, that's saying something about our, our horizontal relationships. And that was true of the gospel too. And so when Jesus eats with Levi, he's saying, hey, Levi, I'm willing to be on your level. I'm willing to be on your level. So Jesus' invitation isn't just broadly speaking to all people, come and I'll remain up here and you'll remain down there. He says, come and I will share with you. I'll share with you with great depth. I'm going to share on a level of intimacy, so to speak, with you. An invitation that's broad and an invitation that's deep. But, of course, the challenge comes slowly in this passage when we start to encounter the Pharisees, don't we? The Pharisees respond. They rebuke Jesus as, as they're starting to do repeatedly. The first couple of chapters of Mark, actually, Jesus gets away pretty unscathed, but it's starting to ramp up now, and the Pharisees are getting more and more frustrated and angry and put out by Jesus, and we see it again here. And they rebuke Jesus, but then Jesus rebukes them, doesn't he? And his rebuke of them is starting this, this train of thought that he has about the Pharisees, which is fundamentally that they're hypocrites. You know, they've taught God's word. They've taught this word that's been passed from generation to generation to generation throughout the Old Testament to this point. But they've not practiced the heart of it, of justice and mercy. This is a word that's meant to come to people who are in need to care for them. And here, here they've encountered, they're meant to be spiritual guides in, in Israel's time and place. They're the spiritual shepherds. And here are the people in spiritual need, says Jesus. And yet, though they teach one thing, they don't practice it. You put all this together, and this, start, this is where we start to see what it really looks like to be invited by Jesus. Jesus' invitation isn't just broader, isn't just deep. He's inviting you to leave behind your way and follow his. 
He's saying, you can't just say, I love grace, I have to practice grace. This is the problem he had constantly with the Pharisees. He says, to follow me is to not just say something, but to live it. You have to love, if you love grace, you have to practice grace. And I think that's a question that's just worth us asking ourselves. Do we practice grace? We love the concept of it. We love the idea of it. We admire it from a distance. But do we practice it? I wonder if, and this is a hard question, and I don't know the answer for any of you, I know the answer for myself, that sometimes the people who are in my lounge room don't reflect the breadth and the depth of God's invitation. And, and the way that I share doesn't always reflect the breadth and the depth of God's invitation. But God's call is broad and deep. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And the challenge for us is, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to do that? We've started to feel, we've started to feel the challenge, haven't we? We've started to feel uncomfortable about what Jesus is saying. I mean, when we say Jesus invites all people, that sounds great. When Jesus starts to share deeply, we think, oh, yeah, okay. When we say, when we start to feel that it's not just for Jesus, but it's for us, we start to feel more uncomfortable. We start to feel like, how can I possibly be someone who calls people to this kind of exclusive claim on my life? Now, why is that? Well, I think really the challenge of of what we're encountering, and if, you, if we're feeling the tension of what's happening in verses 13 through to 17, comes from two things. I think perhaps some of us have a philosophical challenge with what we're encountering. When Jesus is saying, follow me, he's making a genuinely exclusive claim. It's not follow me for now and then follow someone else. It's follow me full stop. It's follow me in everything. That's why there's no clarifications. There's no caveats to that command. And I guess in our culture and our time and place, that kind of exclusive claim feels very awkward, doesn't it? It feels hard to actually abide by a claim which says that there is only one person we should follow. It's even harder to tell someone else that, of course. We call it pluralism in our culture. I mean, originally pluralism was great. Basically, it was like a marketplace of ideas. Everyone would bring their ideas together and you'd debate them. You know, you have the Buddhist, you have the Muslim, you have the Christian. They would articulate their doctrines, they'd debate them on the points that they disagreed about. But now in our culture, pluralism is different. Pluralism is the idea that every religion, every idea ultimately leads to the same peak, up the same mountain, to the same truth. That's what modern pluralism is, and that makes us uncomfortable. Why? Well, because it doesn't have a place for the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. Now, before, before you kind of dismiss Jesus and say he's, he's kind of archaic, just think about pluralism for a while. Fundamentally, I think it's, it's actually highly disrespectful of every other viewpoint. Because what it requires of, that, of your viewpoint is to mould it so that it fits the overriding meta-narrative of pluralism which is that every religion has some truth and leads to the same point. But what if your religion doesn't say that? What if your viewpoint doesn't hold to that? 
It also disrespects uh, each religion's position. I mean, to argue that, for example, Islam and Christianity are fundamentally teaching the same thing is to miss the main point. Uh, Muslims will believe in Jesus, but they'll clearly say Jesus is not God. Of course, as Christians, we'll clearly say Jesus is God. And to force those two religions to, to agree is to take out key doctrines. Unfair on both sides. It's a true, the same truth between Buddhism and Hinduism, for example. You know, Buddhism says our goal is to become nothing. Hinduism says our goal is to become part of God. Those are two fundamentally differing opinions. Fullerism forces us to kind of disregard those conflicts rather than take them seriously. But pluralism is also a form of exclusive thought itself because it doesn't have a space for other exclusive positions. This is the challenge that some of us face when we encounter Jesus. Maybe we don't articulate it as clearly as that, but that's what maybe is bubbling away for us. A philosophical discomfort with Jesus' call to follow me. But let's put aside the philosophical issues because I think most of us don't have that. Most of us, the problem with Jesus saying, follow me, is that we just have a felt reality of that claim. We have a genuine discomfort in our life when we apply that truth to our life. Because Jesus is saying, leave behind all the things that make you feel safe and come to me instead. That's what he's saying. What are the things that make you feel safe? I mean, just ask, what's the thing in your life you would sell everything else for to get? What's that thing? Well, that's probably the thing that makes you feel safe. And Jesus is saying, you've got to leave that behind. Take Levi, for example. Follow me to Levi means leave behind your tax booths and your business. You know, when, Je when Jesus says that to the fishermen, they kind of can go back to their boats and their nets. In fact, they do that at the end of John's Gospel. Remember, before Jesus returns and meets Peter at the Sea of Galilee, Peter has actually returned back to his business. But Levi can't do that. <laughs> you can't leave your tax booth unattended and then come back to it in three years and hope that your business will be there. So for Jesus to say to Levi, leave Leave, follow me, he's saying, leave behind the thing that makes you safe. In fact, commentators will say about tax collectors, what they valued was money over and above respectability. All right? Material possessions over and above respectability. That's why they were willing to be hated in their culture because at least they had some kind of financial security, financial safety. And so for Levi to follow Jesus means he has to leave this thing which he prizes above all others to follow Jesus. But it's not just money, because think about the Pharisees. You flip it round, the Pharisees are interesting. They prize respectability over money, don't they? They, they, would, they would give up all the money in the world as long as they're respected. In fact, later on in Mark's Gospel, he'll say, Jesus will say, be careful of the teachers of the law. They stand on street corners. They love to be, they love to be noticed. Money, respectability, I don't know what it is for you, what you would trade off what, but to, to, to get, but that's your safe thing. That's the thing that makes you feel safe. And when Jesus is saying, follow me, at some point in time, he's going to ask each of us to leave that thing behind. You know, to follow Jesus with integrity, to follow Jesus and not just say, I love grace, but I practice grace, that is going to cost us at times. 
Here's a great quote from a guy called Soren Kierkegaard. Matt, could you chuck it up for us? Thanks. He says, the admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ, he renounces nothing, will not reconstruct his life, and will not let his life express what he is he supposedly admires. Not so with their follower. No, no, the follower admires with all his sorry, aspires with all his strength what he admires. That is such an important insight. You see, you could be an admirer of Jesus, but you're not a follower. Because the difference is an admirer is someone who says, Jesus is great, I'm not going to change any of my life. I'm not going to change my priorities. I'm not going to give up the things that make me feel safe. I mean, he's great. I love grace. But I'm not going to practice it. Not when it makes me uncomfortable. Not when it costs me something. Not when it leads me into places which are less safe. Now, the follower, though, the follower is the one who, with all his or her strength, aspires to be the thing that he admires. See? Actually, the reason why Jesus' words to Levi are challenging is because it is asking each of us to leave behind the thing that makes us safe. You know, it's going to cost us materially to love the Lord and to see his gospel go out. It's going to cost us materially. It's going to cost us in terms of respectability. You can't maintain a veneer of, of, of everything being together in your life and actually talk about the fundamental dynamic of the gospel, which is grace to the unworthy, right? How can you talk about grace in, an in a way with integrity if all of your life is strived at trying to make things look perfect? You can't do it. You can't follow Jesus with integrity if the whole of your life is, is focused on staying in your safe space. Can't do it. Thanks, Matt. But here's, here's the thing that challenges me constantly about the gospel. The moment that you start to think this is a message which is completely, it, it's completely moved beyond our culture, you realise that people still keep believing the gospel. Does it strike you as extraordinary that Levi actually does what he does? Surely it is. I mean, we've had three chapters of Jesus' life, some teaching, which maybe Levi heard, and the reputation of Jesus, a few miracles, and that is enough for Levi to leave his, leave his tax booths, leave his safety behind and follow after. And you know what? Levi's story is repeated throughout history. You go to Africa now, you are seeing the gospel, you're seeing the Christian church exploding. And it costs people to leave, it costs people there to follow Jesus. It's not easy to be a Christian in Africa, where the other growing dominant religion is Islam. But people leave behind all their safe spaces to follow Jesus, and why is that? Well, I think in Levi's case, he gets a glimpse of it, but we, we have the gospel in full. And when you get to the end of the gospel and you see Jesus' life just play out completely, what you understand, what you come to see is extraordinarily that the gospel is about Jesus leaving his safe place for us. You know, John's gospel, John chapter 1, opens with the prologue. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and was with God. That's Jesus' safe space. Perfect communion with his father. Perfect communion. 
And he, he leaves that. And John says he comes into the world which did not recognise him. Why? So that if you believe in him, you can be children of God, says John. That's the gospel. Jesus leaving the perfectly safe, secure, wonderful, glorious place which he is completely entitled to. To come into this world to dine with sinners, to be mocked by Pharisees, to die on a Roman cross. That's the gospel. Why? So that we can find the arms of God. And, you know, to the extent that you believe that, it actually does change you. The gospel tells you that you are really valuable. That's what God would go for. And it equips you, actually, to let go of those things that often you feel like are are your safe refuge. You find in the gospel the great wealth of being a child of God, the promises of eternal life, and they start to make all the other material things that we're holding on to start to glisten less and less the more and more we believe it. And in the gospel we find deep assurance that God loves us and cares for us. And so the respect and the love of others becomes less and less important. You see, what the gospel does actually is it It transforms us. It's what transforms us. A deepening belief that this is what God has come to do in us. This is who Jesus Christ is. And this is his great mission into the world. And the more we believe it, the more we leave those things behind and the more we're transformed. You know, the thing about my tracksuit was, when I got to the main athletics carnival, I was wearing that tracksuit, did the warm-up lap with everyone, felt great. Then the athletics meet started and I sat on the bench the whole day. Sat on the whole... Everyone else went out. They did their races. They won, they lost. People cheered for them. I sat on the bench. Because you can kind of have the tracksuit, but you don't really belong, right? You could have been an athlete to belong. You could have been an athlete to belong to the athletics team. But you, know, you notice what Jesus says when he comes? He says, what, who is he? Is he a judge? Is he here to diagnose the problem? Yes. But more than that, he's a doctor. He's come to heal the problem. That's why Jesus' invitation... See, when he has a meal with people, his meal always has an agenda. It always has a mission. And his invitation is always an invitation to transformation. He's a doctor who's come to heal the sick. And that's the hope of the gospel. Let me pray. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world at great cost to himself so that he might rescue us, pour out his love upon us and transform us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that this would become more and more true as we believe the gospel, that we'd come to see the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.